The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, you've heard uh, the reading of Genesis 22, and the more I look at this magnificent chapter, the more it encourages me and strengthens me in my faith. We have in Genesis 22 an amazingly complete Old Testament picture of salvation, both from the human side and from the divine side, both from Abraham's side and from God's side. We've looked last time, two weeks ago, at an aspect of Abraham, namely his obedience, and we're going to look some more today at the human side of salvation, and specifically trying to understand the relationship between faith and works. And we're going to be looking at some New Testament commentaries on Genesis 22, uh, in James 2 and in Hebrews 6 and some other places. We're going to try to understand the nature of the kind of faith that saves you. And how the, the faith that saves, the faith that justifies, gets worked out in an energetic life of obedience. That's what we're going to see. As I look at this, there's two different themes, and, and uh, uh, it's beautiful to see just all the richness. Because you see also not just the human side and what a life of faith looks like. As Abraham literally walks on earth and leaves footsteps for us that we can follow. And, and Paul talks about that in Romans 4, that we in 4.12, Romans 4.12, we follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham. And so we're supposed to learn what he was like. We're supposed to imitate his faith. So that's the human side. But then we also see in type or in, in acted out prophecy the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that, God willing, next time and for uh, some time after that. Because we have pictured for us the sacrifice of Jesus Christ here in a beautiful way. Now, on the human side, I've thought a lot about it. And, and there's two aspects of the human side that I think are really marvelous. One of them has to do with the issue of friendship with God. You know, Abraham was called God's friend. And James picks up on that after the account in which he describes. And we're going to be looking at that later on. But he says that he was willing to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice and he was called God's friend. Now, Jesus in John 15 says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Do you see that? The connection between a lifestyle of obedience and submission to his law and friendship with God. Conversely, James 4 says that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. So the issue here is one of friendship with God. Are you God's friend? Do you have a friendship with God today? Many of you perhaps came uh, hoping for friendship. There, there's a lot of loneliness in the world. There's a lot of loneliness in America, and we've seen the isolation that comes in our culture. People don't know each other. They don't know their neighbors as much as they used to. They're isolated from each other. And so they, they come to church, at least in part, that they might build relationships, that there might be friends here that would welcome them, and so there are. It's my prayer that that would happen all the more, that we would be more and more loving of strangers, inviting people in, because there's a lot of loneliness and brokenness out there. And the church is a place where you can go and meet people and be refreshed. But you know, more than anything, I'm concerned that you be friends with God, that there be friendship with God. And God says, this is the one that's my friend, the one who hears and obeys my commands. Abraham was called God's friend because he was willing to obey. And so we see kind of uh, stair steps in that relationship. We see faith. And then we see the fear of the Lord as the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son. 
And we see obedience, costly obedience as a result of fear of the Lord. And then we see friendship out of all of that. And so there's that whole theme. Then there's the other aspect of the whole harvest and the vindication of Abraham's faith. This was a lifetime of working that God had been doing in Abraham. This didn't happen overnight. And we traced that out two weeks ago as we were looking at it. But this was, this was the test or trial of a mature faith. This was not a baby trial or beginner trial. This was really the harvest of all that God had been doing in his life all those years. Building up in maturity. So in effect, Abraham was God's, God's uh, masterpiece. I had the chance one summer, summer of 86, to go on a mission trip to Kenya. And we had 18 hours in the city of Amsterdam uh, before we caught our connecting flight. And uh, I got the chance to go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam where some of the Dutch masters, the paintings of Rembrandt and others are there. And one of these paintings, I'll never forget it, it was absolutely huge. I mean, it would have filled all the way across one of those walls over there, if you imagine without the door there. It was just huge. And I thought, wow. And, and skillfully done, the, the, the lighting, the shadows, the expressions on people's faces. And I'm wondering how long it took Rembrandt to paint that painting. It was incredible, breathtaking, really. But then I thought to myself, in, in conjunction with this, this text, can you imagine him working down in a basement with some candles or whatever, painting this magnificent painting, and then when he got done and it was dry, rolling it up and sticking it somewhere and never showing it to anybody? What would the point of that be? But the scripture says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. You are, if you're a Christian, you are God's workmanship. He's putting his craftsmanship on display and he's going to, he's going to arrange for you this week, can I even say today, some good works and he wants you to walk in them. He demands that you walk in them. And for us today, what's in front of us as we're looking at this text is how does saving faith, justifying faith, relate to the workmanship and the doing of good works? That's what we're looking at today. Now let's look backward at what we saw last time, just by way of review, get a running start, and then we'll take it on from there. This was Abraham's greatest test. And we learn right from the beginning in this chapter where it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And I made the point, I said, be ready for it, brother and sister in Christ. God is going to test you. We said it's like the assayer's fire where he takes gold or silver and puts it in the crucible, heats it up to find out what's in there. What is the carrot level? What is the purity level of that gold? He wants to test you. He wants to try you. And he will. So when it's happening, don't say, what is going on in my life? What is this strange thing that's happening to me? It's not a strange thing. It's the very thing he told you he would do. He's going to test your faith. And so he does. Now, I've talked about why God tests us. He tests us for his own glory, to reveal his character so that we might know him better, to reveal our character so that we can know ourselves better. It's usually not a negative, it's not a good picture, but a negative one. As sin bubbles to the surface, we see it, to increase our faith-filled dependence on him. You know why? Because we're very independent. We think we can do it on our own. But then these trials come and they show us otherwise. And ultimately, he does it to build our character. Now, Abraham's test is described in verse 2. Look again at it. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This was a mature test for a mature faith. We talked about at the time how every word seemed to be designed for pain. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Oh, the pain. And that was the nature of his test. And he was tested right to the uttermost. We talked about that. How God didn't call it off until he was right about to kill his son. It went right up to the end. So that was the nature of the test. What was Abraham's response? Well, it was faith-filled, total obedience. Abraham walked a path of total obedience and we can follow in his footsteps. Romans 4.12. It was immediate obedience. The very next day he saddled his donkey. He had gotten the wood ready. Everything was gone. He was ready to go the next day. Immediate obedience. It was faith-filled obedience based on a lifetime of experience with the Word of God. He had trusted in it and he was ready for this test. It was practiced obedience. He had regularly obeyed God. Remember how I traced out there were 19 different commands God had given from chapter 12 up through chapter 21. 19 times he commanded him, he obeyed every one, every single one. Even some very difficult ones like being circumcised at an old age and having his whole family and his whole household circumcised. He did some very difficult things. He obeyed. It was practiced obedience. And we talked about, remember last time, it was reasoned out obedience. We saw that faith and reason are not opposites, they're not enemies, but they're friends. It's just that faith-filled people accept a larger database of reality, the unseen spiritual world. And then we use our reason to work with that, with the promises of God and with other things. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He reasoned out that God must raise Isaac from the dead. And so he went. It was faith-filled and reasoned obedience, and finally it was total obedience. He didn't do 80% of what God asked him. He didn't say, well, look, I, you know, it's a three-day journey, but I did the two days. I did go two days. You know, that's not it. Right to the end. He obeyed right to the uttermost. Well, that's what we saw last time. Now, I know what you're wondering. You said, you just gave us that sermon in five minutes. Why couldn't you do that two weeks ago? I know you're thinking that. But I didn't want to. I actually wanted to drag it out and kind of describe some details. This week, we're going to get into some more details having to do with God's response to him and then the New Testament commentary on the faith and works aspect. Look at God's commendation, and this is so beautiful. Oh, brothers and sisters, that you would have a moment like this, that God would commend your courageous obedience. Aren't you hungry for that? Aren't you thirsty that you would live in such a way that God would commend you in this way? Oh, how sweet is that, the commendation from God. But look what he says. Verse 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't you love that? Oh, wouldn't you love your soul and your spirit to be so ready to obey God? Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now this was an absolute last second reprieve. I mean, he, I, I almost, do you get the sense the knife was actually on its downward arc? If he had waited even a second later... Abraham probably wouldn't have been able to stop his arm. I mean, it was just that close, right to the end, and he gets the reprieve. In effect, a stay of execution. And Abraham had passed the test. He had passed the test. He had been faithful right to the end. And now comes the rewards of obedience. This is very similar to the feeling you get in 2 Timothy 4. Some of you are studying 2 Timothy in Sunday school. And what a magnificent statement when Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
Oh, what a triumphant note that was for Paul. His test was, would he preach the gospel to megalomaniac Nero in Rome? And he passed it. He did it. And what a sweet air of obedience and God's commendation on the other side of that. And that's what it was for Abraham, too. And with it, however, comes an astonishing mystery. What do I mean by that? This incredible statement that that the Lord makes, Now I know that you fear God. Now I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we could meditate on that for a long time and never plumb the depths. What do you mean, now I know? It'd be one thing as we speak that way to each other in a human way. A human language. Well, now I know how much you love me. Or now I can see that you are willing to obey me by how you're acting. But we didn't know. It it could have gone either way, right? But not so with God. You see, God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And he was the Omega at the same time that he was Alpha. All of them, it's not, there's not an unfolding knowing on the part of God. He knows all things. He is omniscient. And what that means is that foreknowledge, knowledge of the future, is part of his omniscience. He knows everything in the future, the way it will come. Listen to what A.W. Pink says about this. I love this statement. God not only knows whatsoever has happened in the past in every part of his vast domains, and he is not only thoroughly acquainted with everything that is now transpiring throughout the entire universe, but he is also perfectly cognizant of every event from the least to the greatest that will ever happen in the ages to come. God's knowledge of the future is as complete as is his knowledge of the past and the present. And that because the future depends entirely on himself. Were it in any way possible for something to occur apart from either the direct agency or permission of God, then that something would be independent of him and he would at once cease to be supreme. Well, I can tell you right now, now, God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will never cease being supreme in his universe. He knows the end from the beginning. You know what it says in Psalm 139, verse 16. David, meditating on this exact same theme, he said, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That is the God that we serve. He's a foreknowing God. Before a a word is on my tongue, you know it completely or altogether, O Lord, right? That's the God we worship. Then what is happening here when the angel of the Lord says, Now I know that you fear God. Did he not know before the test? Did he not know before the trial? Herein lies the mystery. But yet this is exactly what he says. Now I know that you fear God. You know what this teaches me? First of all, it teaches me that this little brain will never understand all there is in the word of God. But it also teaches me that life matters. That history matters. That your decisions matter. Every one of them. And that God is watching and observing to see what you'll do with your next temptation. And he will note... And he will record it. He remembers everything. And you know why? Because you matter. And so do the people you're interacting with at every moment. Life matters. And God's record books matter. Today is unspeakably precious. And I'm not speaking that yesterday wasn't. Or that tomorrow will not be. I'm just saying that life is unspeakably precious. And it makes a difference what you do with the tests of your life. And so he said in a human way, a human way of understanding, now I know that you fear God. Now I believe without Abraham's total obedience, this statement would never have been made. More on this in a moment.
At that point, the angel gives the promise again, restated and intensified. Look at verses 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring or seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Oh, how sweet it must have been to hear that. This is, by the way, no different than the promises that he'd made before. It's always the same thing. It is the multiplicity of descendants and it is the promised land. But there's always an intensification Kind of new insights. For example, you'll possess the cities of your enemies. That's a detail there. It kind of makes sense given what was said before, but it's there. And then this interesting statement, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3.16. Listen to what he says. So Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, and that person is Christ. Now, what is going on here? Well, all I know is that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is a good commentator on Scripture. We always want Paul, filled with the Spirit, to be our commentator. And he's commenting on what the angel said. And he's saying the angel is not speaking about the millions of Jews that would come. But through your seed, meaning one person who would come, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now... Jesus, when facing his tormentors and opposers, at one point in John chapter 8, said, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Could it be that this was the moment of revelation? I don't know. Could either be this or Genesis 15, when he looked under the stars? I don't know. But I think that there is an unfolding revelation of Christ. And I think that's exactly what happens at Mount Moriah through this obedience. And so we get to faith's first reward. I'll get to Hebrews 6 in a moment, but let's skip ahead to faith's first reward. You know what faith's first reward is in this text? Praise from God. The commendation of God. Now, I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to go and spend eternity in heaven praising Him. We should go and praise God. We can praise Him now. And that is a wonderful and a blessed thing. And I'm looking forward to that. And it takes central place because He's at the center of heaven. And so we will be. But another theme, a lesser theme in all of this, a Judgment Day theme, is that God actually praises sinful human beings. Can you believe that? That God would actually speak a word of praise or commendation about a sinner. But He will. You know what it says in one of Jesus' parables. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter now into the joy of your Master. How will your heart swell with joy to hear that from God? How will it feel to have God, the meticulous judge, look across your life and with the cleansing work of the blood of Christ, let's never forget that because nothing we do is perfect, but with the cleansing work of the blood of Christ, commend your life and even details in your life. Is this not a great reward that God would praise you? And how sweet is that? It speaks of this in many places. It says that we should seek it in John chapter 5, in which Jesus criticizes the Jews for seeking praise from one another, and yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. That's in John 5. 
In Romans 2.29, he said, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Then he says, Romans 2.29, Such a man's praise does not come from men, but from God. Is that valuable to you at all? Would it be precious to you to have God praise you? I would think so. And not just once, but I mean for a lifetime of obedient things, for things well done. Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's he going to give you, some gold trinket or bauble? No, he will praise what was done. And wouldn't you like that better than any wreath or any medal to hang around your neck? I would think so. Praise from God is reward. It says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. That's faith's reward number one. Faith's reward number two here in this text is greater self-revelation from God. Would you like to know God better here on earth? Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to have him open up and show himself to you more? Oh, that's so precious, isn't it? That God would show himself more to you than he's shown before. Now, it says in Isaiah 45, verse 15, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. You'd say, that, well, that's not the God that I know. Oh, yes, it is. It's a God you know every day because you don't see him. <laughs> and sometimes you may even wonder if he's even there. Those are just echoes from the devil, but there it is. Wondering. Our God is a God who hides himself and who chooses or doesn't to reveal himself. To whom does he reveal himself? Well, the scripture says again and again that he shows himself more and more to those who obey him by faith. If you obey him in a costly way, he'll show himself a little more to you. For example, John 14, 21. Listen to this. Great verse. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and will disclose myself to him. I'll reveal myself, I'll manifest myself to the obedient keeper of my commands. Would you like to know God better than walk in the footsteps of the faith that your father Abraham had in Genesis 22? Do you think that Abraham knew God better when he walked down Mount Moriah with his living son Isaac than when he walked up? I think so. He learned more of God's faithfulness. He learned more of God's future plans. God had revealed and opened himself up to him. Faithfulness of God. Now, take a minute, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of the New Testament commentaries on our text. And I want to try to understand it. And it has to do with God swearing by himself for our benefit. Now, that's an odd thing, really, an oath in which God swears by himself. This is what it says. In Genesis 22, I'm looking at Hebrews 6, 13 through 19 while you're turning there. But in Genesis 22, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemy. And through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
Now, what an interesting thing that is for God to do. I solemnly swear by myself that. And that's what he says. Well, the author of Hebrews picks up on this. And I think he's reaching back also, in my opinion, to Genesis 15 with the solemn covenant-cutting ceremony in which Abraham asked, Now, how can I know that I'm going to get the land? Remember what he said. He said, take the, the animals and cut them up in pieces and make the path. You remember what happened. And then God, in a kind of a theophany, a picture of God, came down in a blazing fire pot and moved through the pieces. You remember that, Genesis 15. Now, here in Genesis 22... He is taking an oath stance and says, I hereby swear by myself that through your seed all peoples on earth will be blessed. So in effect, he links his, his character, frankly, he, li- he links his own existence as a being to whether Abraham will get the land. And he links his truthfulness as a God to whether through Abraham's seed all nations on earth will be blessed. Isn't that incredible? Well, the author in in Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, doesn't want you to miss that. And frankly, he says the whole thing was written for you anyway. It wasn't written for Abraham, frankly. Abraham had been dead for 500 years when this was written. Moses wrote it 500 years or so after Abraham. He was already in his eternal reward. It wasn't written for Abraham. It was written for us. So that we, future, succeeding generations, could read it. And why? Well, the author of Hebrews says it's so that you may be greatly encouraged in your faith. That's the bottom line. Listen for it. I'm going to read it, but that's the the bottom line. The reason we're studying Genesis 22 carefully, the reason we're talking about God swearing solemnly by himself, is so that you will realize how truthful is God who has made promises to you. And what promises has he made to you? We'll get to that in a minute. You know what they are. We'll get to it in a minute. But our God is a truthful God, the very one who passed through the pieces in the fire pot, the very one who stood and said, I hereby swear by myself that this is the one that we're dealing with. Now, look what he says. This is Hebrews 6, 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Verse 18, this is Hebrews 6, 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, that's you and me, by the way, If you're into circling things in your Bible, circle that and say, I'm in here, I'm in the we, I'm included in the we. God did this so that we who have fled to to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged, exhorted, strengthened in our faith. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's what the author is saying. You know what he wants to give you? He wants to give you stability in your Christian life. He wants to give you an anchor that's not going to pull out when the storms and trials come. And we already know they're going to come. We know they're going to come. And he wants an anchor that's going to be strong enough to hold your soul in place. And where is that? Connected to Christ. And so we had this picture of the covenant-cutting ceremony in Genesis 15 in which God in the fire pot moves through the pieces and says, So may this happen to me. If I do not keep my promise, may I be blown to bits like this animal's cut up. Secondly, I hereby swear solemnly by myself 
that through your seed all nations on earth will be blessed. God has these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for him to lie so that you could be greatly encouraged in his covenant promises to you. And what are those promises? Well, I'm saying that they're better than the promises he made to Abraham. Better. They're better promises. You know what he's promising you? He's promising that you will live forever in an incorruptible place and an incorruptible body with other people like you worshiping the eternal God face to face. Now that's an incredible promise. And he wants you to be certain of it. He wants you to be greatly encouraged to throw off the discouragements of life and to say this gospel towers over anything that's going on in my life. It towers over any physical illness, any monetary problems. It towers over anything going on in me because God has made me a promise and it is unshakable. That's what he's getting. Someday, if you're a Christian, you will be in an incorruptible body with a soul that shines like the sun in purity and holiness. That's what he's saying is going to happen to you. Are you encouraged? I'm encouraged. Whether you're encouraged or not, I'm encouraged. I'm greatly encouraged. Hebrews 6 is for my great encouragement. It's for you too. All right. Now you're wondering, when are we going to get to faith and works? I don't know, next week. But anyway, faith and works. That is the final issue, and it's the final comment on this text. Look at, at uh, James chapter 2. Turn over to James chapter 2. This is the vindication of Abraham's faith. Faith and works. And James and Paul, who I would think would have been friends being Christians, seem to be having an argument over the meaning of the word Justification. If anybody ever said to me, there are contradictions in the Bible, I would say, well, show me one. And if they knew anything about the Bible, they would choose this one and go here first. Because it seems like James and Paul are saying absolutely opposite things about justification. Have you, have you struggled with this before? In Romans 3.28, just stay in James 2, we'll get to that in a minute, but in Romans 3.28... The Apostle Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, so you get, you get faith, and as a result of faith and, and no works, so to speak, or apart from works of the law, just by faith, you are justified. But then along comes James, and look at James 2, 21 through 24. James 2, 21 through 24, and this is what it says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that, his, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. <laughs> Look at 2, 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I would say to my friend that's trying to prove there's contradiction in the Bible, you have chosen well. Let's work on it. Let's try to understand it. Now, do you think I really think that there are contradictions in the Bible? Of course not. Well, what is going on? How is it that, how is it that Paul can say, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law? And then he even says, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But then James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Martin Luther was so distressed by this that he made two great mistakes. Two mistakes. Now, I love Martin Luther and I can't hold his shoes. But he did make two mistakes. First of all, he called James an epistle of straw in comparison with Paul's epistles. 
That is a bad mistake. He saw, in effect, a canon within the canon. More holy and better books than other of the scriptural books. And he said, yes, James is canonical, and yes, it's scripture, but Paul and the Gospel of John, now that's the core. That's what you want to really read. That's a bad mistake, and it leads to liberalism, frankly. It leads eventually to the point where you don't respect the Word of God at all, because it's like a worm that starts to eat the, the, the sweater, and it's not going to stop when it gets to the good part. It's going to keep going. And before you know it, you've got no Scripture left at all. So that was a bad mistake. He also didn't, you know, what you could call the unforgivable sin of translating, and that's adding words that aren't in the text. All right, And he did it in Romans 3.28. He said, For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Well, the word alone, he put allein in the, in the German, or solus in his Latin works, wasn't there. It's not in the Greek. And he justified it by saying, well, this is what Paul's saying, isn't it? But it's not there. All right, now, how are we going to reconcile this? Well, I love what Alexander Ross said. Beautiful. Paul... And James are not antagonists facing each other with cross swords. Who's going to win on justification? Not at all. But they are allies back to back fighting opposite enemies. And they use terminology differently in order to do that. What is Paul facing? What is he fighting? Well, he's fighting a Pharisaic, Jewish, legalistic understanding of salvation that says, by circumcision and by the temple sacrifices, by the dietary laws, by keeping the law of Moses, by works of the law, your sins are hereby paid for. You pay for sin by good deeds. He says, may it never be, because then you could boast. I believe that's exactly what Martin Luther was fighting. The Roman Catholic version of it. By sacraments of penance, by uh, going up uh, sacred staircases on your knees and reciting the Ave Maria, um, or by um, paying lots of money to the church, or by doing whatever the priest told you for penance, you would hereby pay for your sins. Luther said, no, may it never be. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. How then are sins forgiven? How can we who are wicked, how can we who are sinful be made right on judgment day? Is that not an issue for us? What will atone for our sins? Well, Paul got it right and so did Luther. It's by faith simply in the promises of God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. At the beginning of his, of his life as a spiritual man, made alive in Christ, we understand that. He was innocent before the judgment seat of God, and he had done no good works at all. That's what Paul's facing, and that's also what Martin Luther was facing. But James is facing an opposite enemy, frankly, that would only come along once that understanding of salvation is in place. Once you understand it's by simple faith alone that we're made righteous, what's the next thought that comes? Well then, I can live any way I want and go to heaven. Have you ever faced that in witnessing? Now you're saying it's just by grace, just simply by faith, no works? Yes. Well, then why don't you just murder your, your enemy? Why don't you just you know, do anything you want, do evil things? James is dealing with that enemy of the gospel. And he's dealing, I'll look at 2.14, go back. He says, in, this is in James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, or can a faith like that, Save him. He's dealing with the question of what kind of faith justifies you. 
And a faith that produces no obedience, a faith that will not take Isaac up on, the, on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, a faith that says no to the commands of God, a faith that throws off the yoke of King Jesus, even though he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, a faith that will not obey, James says, is dead faith, demon faith, useless faith. That's literally what he says. It's, the, it's a dead faith that produces nothing. It's dead it's demon faith, because even the demons say they believe in God, but they hate him, they shudder. And it's useless faith that produces nothing. If that's the kind of faith you have, then you are not justified. And so basically, Abraham's justification was set out in the mind of God, but then lived out in the life of Abraham. That's what he's saying. And his faith and his actions were working together. And he was called God's friend. Now, I'm not saying this is easy to understand. But I'm saying it's taught again and again and again. God has saved you in order that you might be zealous for good works. It's the book of Titus. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And John 15, 10, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. It's just what God had said in Genesis 22:18. Through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. God gives a gift of justifying faith. He then shows that it's there by a series of trials and tests that bring to the surface what he has invested in you. It's a mystery. Your own will, your own heart intimately involved. You have successes and failures as Swindoll said, three steps forward and two steps back, but he is revealing a saving faith through obedience, a pattern, a lifelong pattern of obedience. And if that pattern is not there, may I submit to you that, that you need to question whether you're in the faith at all? That's exactly what the, James 2 is saying. What kind of applications do we take out of this? Well, first, I've already said, God will test your faith. And you know the number one test? He's not going to ask you probably to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice. That's one time as a picture of the gospel. We'll talk about that next time. But he's going to ask for something else. He's going to come to you every day and say, take my cross upon you and follow me. If anyone does not take up his cross and follow, he's not worthy of me. It's in Matthew 16. He's going to say in Romans 12, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Put yourself on the altar and do it every moment. That's what he's going to tell you to do. He's going to say in Romans 8, 12 through 14, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. We are debtors. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is the kind of faith that saves Walk with Jesus daily. Walk with him every moment. Faith apart from obedience is dead. Many in America claim to be Christians. I walked the aisle. I remember it distinctly. I remember praying that prayer at the end of that little pamphlet. I mean, they told me that was it, right? Well, that's not it. That's what James 2 is written for. That kind of faith does not save. Thirdly, look at the reward of faith-filled obedience, and that is greater knowledge of God himself. I just think there are great men and women of God listening to me right now who just have not found out yet the great things God has in store. Be courageous for him. Step out in faith. That strange voice you're hearing inside telling you to do something for the gospel, something heroic, something sacrificial and, and that would take great courage, it's probably the Holy Spirit. Test it by asking your friends. 
pray through it, but then do it. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to know God better. And he's going to give you some new assignments. And so it goes. Be fruitful for him and be courageous. And finally, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. I've got 2 Corinthians 13.5 as a closing verse there. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? We are not a very introspective people. We just take it for granted. Of course, I'm a Christian. I go to church. But that's not enough. Are you living as Abraham did? Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what he did. Are you obeying and walking in faithfulness the way he did? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.